episode 243. Who will be impacted by the snowball of drug pricing initiatives pouring out of Washington right now? Today, I speak with Josh LaRosa from the Win Health Group. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know. Talking. Relentlessly seeking value. Here's one fact of life that's always true. It will always be the desire of big vested interests to maintain and stick with the status quo. This applies to all of the various parties in the drug supply chain as much as it does to any other industry. So here's the $106 billion a year question. In 2019 or 2020, will all of the drug pricing proposals and legislature popping up all over the place in Washington and in some states right now, will they all just simply blow over? Is it the case that big pharma and PBMs and insurance carriers are well-girded enough to withstand these various efforts to undermine their revenue streams, at least at some level? But let's start at the beginning. You might be wondering what exactly is going on right now legislatively and with various proposals. It's very difficult to keep track of it all. And what are pharma companies and PBMs and insurers mulling over as they contemplate their strategies to maintain their current level of control and keep their shareholders happy? Never fear. Today, I speak with Josh LaRosa from Win Health Group. He sets us straight and gets us up to speed. My name is Stacey Richter, and this podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. Also, I just want to timestamp this episode. I'm speaking with Josh at the end of August 2019. Things happen fast. So I just want to make sure that you know when we are actually having this conversation. Josh LaRosa, welcome to Relentless Health Value. Hi, Stacey. Thank you for having me. Let's just maybe start at the beginning. There is right now practically a laundry list of legislation and proposals that are in various chambers of Congress, as well as coming out of the office of HHS and probably other places as well, Health and Human Services. Obviously, this is a a long list, no matter how you categorize things. Is this unusual? Are we at some sort of inflection point right now as a nation where there are multiple eyes on what's going on with healthcare, it having reached very nearly 20% of the GDP, such that it's kind of an all hands on deck moment? Yeah, I mean, I definitely think we are I like that phrase. I think we are really at an inflection point here, or maybe I should say we have the potential to be at an inflection point here. And by that, I mean, yes, like there there definitely is a high volume of proposals on the table. It's definitely caught Congress's attention. A lot of that is being driven by the fact that this is a real problem that a lot of patients and consumers face. You know, when you go to the pharmacy counter, I mean, people say the story all the time. A lot of, you know, we'll have to choose between our monthly dose of insulin or rent for the month or our grocery list for the month. And I just think the growth in prices over the last couple of years has really pushed the American people to fight for and to call for this change. And it's finally caught Congress's attention. And I think also when the administration releases blueprint, I think that really helped to also add credence to the fact that something needs to happen. So you have this intersection of the public, of Congress, of the administration, you know, President Trump, all of them are kind of converging on the fact that something needs to happen. And so there is this buildup. And that's why you do see this, like we said, this long laundry list of provisions. And 
I'll caveat all of that by saying, I think when I said we have a potential for an inflection point, there is an unfortunate fact at play here. And it's the variable of timing. The drug pricing debate has been dominating the national discourse for pretty much the entirety of 2019. So far, a little bit of towards the end of 2018, but certainly for all of 2019. And we thought we were going to see something before the August recess. Uh, and by something, I mean, final congressional package that could ultimately go to the president for a signature. But that didn't happen. Then, you know, there's a five week recess that we're still we're at the end of here now towards the end of August. And then soon the political attention is going to be shifting over to the 2020 election. It's hard to say, essentially, if Congress is going to be able to get something through in time before all attention kind of goes towards something else. So there is an inflection point, but we're still not out of the woods yet as far as are we going to see something pass or not? Well, and then also, obviously, we're disrupting some very, very powerful industry stakeholders. I think it also remains to be seen how they choose to rise up and put the kibosh on whatever is going to interfere with revenue streams. You're absolutely right. As part of the reason why we've seen some of the regulatory options kind of fall to the wayside with drug pricing. The DTC rule that came from the administration, I mean, that got shot down. The infamous sort of the rebate reform rule that was coming out of the administration, that also got withdrawn because essentially stakeholders, and a lot of that was, I will say, driven by insurers and hospitals, but they were saying it was going to cost too much, that premiums were going to increase, that patients would ultimately actually have to pay for and whether or not the rebate reform rule would actually have yielded net positive benefits to everyone. We'll never know because it, it wasn't put in, into law. Yeah, for sure. And if anyone is interested in hearing the long version of how the rebate proposal was ultimately turned into a quagmire, listen to episode 231 with A.J. Loyacano, who gives a very, very interesting account of what's going on behind the curtain in the drug supply chain that wound up ultimately undermining that initiative. Okay, Josh, if you were going to kind of rank these things most likely to happen and most disruptive, what would bubble to the top that we should explore at greater length? I definitely think we'll probably see a lot, if not most or all of the measures within sort of the transparency camp and the generics camp pass, because those for a long time have had strong bipartisan support in Congress, a lot of people were referring to them as sort of the low hanging fruit <laughs> of the political kind of debate. So there's the stuff that would like really disrupt the industry and the supply chain. And then there are the things that would cause some shifting to happen, but would ultimately not be targeting the greatest pain points. And that's really the, the transparency and the generic stuff, because that's pretty much just for transparency. It's just putting more information out there, but it's not on day one going to cause you to have to completely reorient your business model, right? So you're going to have to be airing some potentially dirty laundry, depending on your business practices, right? But it's not going to be nail in the coffin from the outset. And then for generics, that's going to ultimately bring more competition to the market. And we might see some prices fall as a result of that. But it's also hard to sort of make the, a compelling political argument that we should thwart competition. And so I don't think that's necessarily a debate that those who are in opposition to those bills will want to spend their political capital on when there are bigger monsters, so to speak, that they'll want to <laughs> slay. 
in trying to make sure that they can preserve their business operations as as much as possible. So yeah, I would say generics and transparency, a lot of those measures, which we can get into later, will probably rise to the top. And then I think for most impactful, a euphemism for that would be what would be the most disruptive, right? (laughs) Definitely the international pricing index model. I think whenever I'm on the phone with a client, especially that invested in the drug pricing space, I mean, IPI is always talked about. Have you heard anything new about it? Is something can happen soon? Are they going to actually go forward with it? What is the likelihood? Like that's definitely a top of mind for a lot of folks. What the IPI model does is it really establishes this very drastically different precedent that the federal government can actually a implement price controls, which is essentially what it is, and also tying those to internationally set prices. It's a big departure from where we are now. Um, And I think folks are worried that it's definitely a slippery slope. And then I would say the technical changes to Part D that are being discussed in Senate finance, those are also potentially impactful. I mean, if you completely change the way the catastrophic phase of the benefit works. Let's just take that last one first and then kind of work backwards, just because I have a bunch of questions about this catastrophic reform. So let's just talk about this ontologically to begin with. When you say the catastrophic benefit, what you're referring to there is in everybody's insurance policy, like if you're over a certain dollar threshold, the catastrophic benefit kicks in. Is that what we're talking about here? Yes. So for Part D, as in drug for Medicare, if someone is taking one of the orphan drugs or some of these cancer drugs or whatever, I'm assuming that we're in catastrophic zone. Very quickly, yes. The way the benefit works, and it's, it's really wonky, so I'll try to break it down somewhat digestibly, but essentially you have a deductible amount as a beneficiary where you're paying 100% of those costs. And once you meet that, let's say it's $500 or whatever, you pay up to that deductible. And then once you pass that, you hit this initial coverage period where you're paying a quarter of the costs and um, the insurance carrier is paying 75% of those costs. And then once you essentially hit the catastrophic coverage threshold, everything switches. And now the beneficiary pays, according to current Medicare law, only 5% of the costs after $8,000, essentially, and plans pay 15% and Medicare pays 80%. Up to eternity? So in other words, there's no cap of -of out-of-pocket costs? For the enrollee. So, you know, if the drug costs a million dollars, I'm paying, if I'm a patient, I'm paying whatever it was for the beginning math. Let's just, you know, disregard for trying to do this in my head really fast. But like once they hit eight grand or whatever, I'm paying 5% of a million minus eight grand. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. For eternity. Yeah. No, it's, it's, it's very wild. And then by contrast, Medicare is paying 80% of a million minus eight grand, which then falls under the taxpayers. There's a lot of money that's happening. And like you were saying earlier, if you're on one of those high cost drugs, you get to that catastrophic coverage threshold really, really fast. And so it's a big deal because the plans, they only pay 15% after that. And I don't think the manufacturers, yeah, the manufacturers don't pay anything. So there's no incentive to prevent or slow down the progression of, you know, reaching that catastrophic phase of the benefit because there's so little liability for both plans and manufacturers to pay into that part once we get there. So the legislation on the table, what it would aim to do is say, look, manufacturers, look, insurance carriers, is it you have to pay more attention and do more prior auths before people can get these drugs? Or you have to pay more if you put the drug on formulary and someone should get it? Or like, what's the impact here? Yeah, the proposals that are being discussed right now in Congress are essentially trying to re- 
formulate the liability for manufacturers and insurers in the catastrophic phase of the benefit. And by increasing their liability and the benefit, encouraging them to put in price control measures that will slow down the rate at which enrollees reach the catastrophic phase of the benefit. So some of that might be lowering the price of drugs. Like that's that's the ideal scenario, right? If we lower the price of drugs, then, you know, it'll take more units of drugs to reach the catastrophic phase of the benefit. It also might yield to things like what you're saying as well, prior auth or basically encouraging enrollees to opt for lower cost alternatives, which the, the insurer doesn't really mind, but but manufacturers might mind because they, you know, they want you to buy their higher cost products. So this is something that if the patient goes to the pharmacy, they can see before they pick the drug up how much it's going to cost them. Like they got to pay out of pocket that 5% or 15% or, or kind of like whatever it is. So it's not like they're going to get caught later on with this gigantic bill that they didn't anticipate. Correct. That's also why transparency is being touted as one of these core tenets of, you know, drug pricing reform, because a lot of times beneficiaries and consumers, just they just don't know how much things are going to cost them until after they get the bill at the pharmacy counter. Okay, so let's just cut to the chase with this catastrophic coverage reform that's going on here. Let's just say it goes through and what it looks like. I'm just going to make something up. Theoretically, it's okay, manufacturer, you got a spot. If somebody hits the catastrophic level, you're responsible for 20% or 30% and the carrier is responsible for 30% or something that minimizes the government's liability for fully 80% of the cost of that drug at that juncture. Is that what's going to happen or is what's going to happen that there's some kind of price cap or something like that so that if it's a Medicare patient, my mind is going in like six different directions relative to how you would impact the patient spend at that level or the pharma company has to cover the patient portion at a certain point or like what happens here? Thank you for forcing me to clarify this. So so there, there are a couple things going on. The first is that there will be a hard cap on enrollee cost sharing above the catastrophic out-of-pocket limit. So what that means is once the catastrophic phase is triggered, the beneficiary will pay $0 for infinity, right? So there is that sure fired beneficiary protection in place through that cap. The other thing that, um, and this is sort of the one-two punch of the Senate finance proposal, but they're also going to, if if the bill passes as proposed, it would lower the out-of-pocket limit that would trigger the catastrophic phase. So right now it's at about 8,000. I forget what the bill would bring it down to, but it's def- I think it's closer to 3,000. So at any rate, the bill would would lower the amount that you have to pay to to trigger the catastrophic phase. And then the bill would increase the, the amount that manufacturers and insurers have to pay in the catastrophic phase of the benefit, meaning that they would have to pay more money, like you said, for infinity once you get past that catastrophic phase of the benefit. So now insurers and manufacturers are paying more and you reach the catastrophic phase of the benefit sooner because you've lowered that threshold dollar amount. And so in addition to protecting beneficiaries by putting a hard cap on their cost sharing, you're also incentivizing in the background insurers and manufacturers to come up with ways to control the costs of drugs because they have increased incentive to pay less in the catastrophic phase because now they are accountable for more of that spend. So scale of one to five, how hard are PBMs and insurers fighting against that? I would say, ooh, if I had to put a scale from one to five, I would say it's probably around 
four ish because right because insurers definitely they would be paying the most under this change. Yeah, insurers would would go from fifteen percent liability to under the Senate Finance proposal they would go up to sixteen percent liability. So that's a pretty big jump. So they 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 don't want that. And how about pharma? Pharma is more amenable to this because they would only be paying. 20%, but that's still a lot. But I think they have slightly less to lose. So they are, I think they would be more willing to go for this. Of course, everyone would prefer the status quo, but they are sort of, I think, less in opposition to this then. Got it. Okay. So moving on. And and since we started with the last thing first, I'm going to continue in that approach and do the second last thing. Second, <laughs> you had mentioned this international pricing index model that has been touted in which for part B, as in boy, what would happen would be if the European Union or whoever is paying X for a drug, I mean, what is the United States going to do? Take the average of it's like the NASDAQ or something. (laughs) They just take the (laughs) average of a certain bundle of prices. And that's what the United States is aiming to pay. Yeah. So I'll caveat this by saying CMS hasn't actually formally proposed a rule. They've only done it's it's funny. It's an advance notice of proposed rulemaking, which means CMS basically released a several hundred page document saying this is what we might propose, but we haven't proposed it yet. At any rate, yes. So what the federal government is essentially going to do is say they haven't picked which nations yet, but they've said there are these theoretical, economically similar nations out there in the world, and they pay X dollars for drugs and that, you know, that we also pay for in Part B as in boy. And we're going to find this price within that range of drugs that is what we deem to be the index of international prices for drugs, right? And then U.S. prices will then be indexed to that rate. And it's not going to be overnight. In the model as proposed, it would actually be phased in over five years. It's going to apply to 50% of all Medicare providers in Part B, the way that the model is designed. And it's going to be mandatory, meaning everyone's going to have to participate it if they're in a designated region. What are the chances of this going through? The chances are it's definitely not zero. I think from a purely political standpoint, President Trump has essentially faced major blows at every turn in regards to his drug pricing strategy. He lost the rebate rule, he lost the DTC rule, and he had to walk back the six protected classes, changes that he wanted to make, which if folks are familiar with that, that was a big surprise to most people in the space as well. So he really needs a win. And this is really his one of his last ditch efforts to do so. So I, I think it's definitely, I mean, there there is a good chance it could happen. And I don't want to say only because it's it is a big deal, but it's only a model through CMMI. It's a limited time duration. I mean, five years is a long time. Fifty percent of the country is a large amount. But, you know, it's not like a new law is being put into place that's going to be the status quo forever. So I think the administration really might put this one out there. Also, there was a bunch of talk about enabling Medicare to negotiate prices. Is this in lieu of that? I don't know if I would say if it's in lieu of that. I, I think you could definitely see this, in fact, as complementary to it, because A, the people who aren't participating in the model would need to have some levers to control costs as well. The point of a model is to test it and see if this effect works. And then if it does work, then yes, maybe we would just say we're doing international price indexing and we're, we don't need to worry about negotiations or whatever, because we're just going to base it on international prices. But I think at least for the foreseeable future, the administration and Congress is going to see the need for additional levers that exist beyond this model because it is 
though it's wide reaching, it's still limited in scope. And in fact, it's interesting you mentioned that because Speaker Nancy Pelosi and President Trump are actually reportedly in discussions right now to come up with a, a bill that would actually allow Medicare to directly negotiate drug prices with pharmaceutical manufacturers. So I think by that token, we can see the administration seeing this as complementary to its international pricing index model. Got it. So those are the the two kind of areas that you feel would have the greatest impact on industry should they transpire. Yeah. And I, I would say when you said those two, do you mean IPI and the Part D change or, or negotiations? I'm going to say negotiations. Obviously, pharma's got to charge the government best price. Whatever pharma feels the market will bear is what they're going to charge. Yeah, I completely agree. I, I would say that Medicare negotiating drug prices with manufacturers is definitely way up there in terms of what would be the most disruptive and the most impactful. That also correlates with whether I think it will work or not. And I, I do happen to think that the Pelosi-Trump plan to allow Medicare to negotiate drug prices with pharmaceutical manufacturers, I, I just don't think we're going to actually see that go into effect. Um, I definitely think the things that we outlined earlier have much higher likelihood than that, just frankly speaking. Got it. Okay. So relative to transparency, the FTC is looking to report on the role of intermediaries, PBMs, relative to drug pricing. Obviously, we all know PBM contracts are very, let's just say, dense. They are very well known to have, let's just say, escape hatches. So I've heard it said that, you know, the PBM's got like 100 contracts. So if an employer or somebody who's negotiating with the PBM comes down hard in one area, it's like squeezing a balloon. They're like, OK, so they'll give you the contract that minimizes that one particular area because there's 100 other areas they can raise the price on. So at the end of the day, like they're making the same amount of money. How does the FTC, you know, like obviously you've got some pretty really smart people who have been at this a long time, who have crafted those contracts. Does the FTC think that they are going to get in there and be able to mandate that those contracts are illuminated like in all of their dark corners? How does this going to happen? A lot of it really depends on the muscle behind the FTC and how much effort and work they're willing to allocate to this because the FTC's budget is is limited and there's a lot of stuff going on that they're trying to work with. So a lot of this will depend on how much they can really allocate to this because what they want to do is exactly like what you said. They want to study the anti-competitive behavior of PBMs, measure their effects on patients' prescription choices and cost, and bring that transparency of information to the forefront just so kind of to put them on blast so to speak, right, to bring those activities to the light. And I think, you know, if they had unlimited money and resources and personnel, they could certainly do that. But a lot of it's just going to be, you know, the devil as it always is, is in the detail. And if the FTC can't really muster a full force behind it, then this might just become just another, you know, effort and formality, but it's, it might not really lead to much. So it really just will depend on their ability to kind of be dedicated to this effort. Because there's just so much going on there. Like I was just hearing the other day about stacking rebates. So, you know, a lot of the PBMs own specialty pharmacies. So now there's if the PBMs transferring its rebates over to the specialty pharmacy. There's just so many ways to circumvent a rule. Well, there was a Senate Judiciary hearing earlier this spring where there's all these questions and discussions around the unfortunate allowance of all of these anti-competitive behaviors to occur in the marketplace and how the FTC isn't doing more and, and things along those lines. And a lot of the 
key witnesses there were just saying, you know, plainly, the FTC just needs more money to throw more staff at the issue and um, to actually do a lot of the things that they're already authorized to do. So, you know, adding another authorization for the FTC to do something is great, but you really need the money and, and the people behind it to affect the job. So, right. So it's like two things. A, PBMs and their activities, I mean, it's super complex and we know that's a problem and that's the reason why this is going on. But the underlying issue is, you know, it's not just authorizing it in name. There needs to be muscle and resources to, to back it up. So, you know, hopefully something comes of it, but it's left to be seen. Yeah. AJ Loyacano, when I interviewed him, said the only way really to solve this is to just say PBMs cannot take dollars from pharma, period. <laughs> yeah, that would be very easy. <laughs> <laughs> you know, because otherwise, if you open up a crack, you've opened up a chasm, you know? Right. Because like that's at least changing business practice, right? So that that would actually be a meaningful change. But all this FTC business and trying to call together these reports on PBM activity, I mean, it would be really useful knowledge and information to have and a lot of studies could be done and what have you, but it's not actually doing anything. You know what I mean? It would be good to have as far as oversight is concerned, but we're not going to see anything immediately materialized from this because all it is is doing is just pulling out information into the world. And, you know, people might try to alter their behavior a little bit because they don't want people to know exactly what's going on. But I think for the most part, it's not really a meaningful change. And in part, that's why this is probably likely to go through because it seems like it's something that's being done. But is it really? You know what I mean? So yeah. And especially just given how many dark corners there are to hide things in, you can shine a light in one area, but yes. that doesn't mean that people aren't going to scurry elsewhere. On the other side, I did actually read the Daniel Kahneman book, which said that bad things happen under the cloak of darkness so that people will do things. If people realize that their actions will be seen, they tend to act in ways which are more palatable to a public eye than if they realize that they're doing something shrouded by the night, you know? <laughs> yeah, I completely agree. I think transparency absolutely needs to be a part of the solution, but it can't be the only part. And I mean, everyone agrees on that. And anyone who's only pushing for transparency is is really just trying to keep 98% of the status quo, or I, I mean, I'm just making up a quantification of that. But you know, you know what I'm trying to say, but, but transparency is, is definitely a necessary condition. It just can't be all of it. It could be a phase one, perhaps. Yes. And then the Fair Drug Pricing Act, if drugs are going to increase price, there has to be a rationale. That's really along the same lines. It's again, just kind of like putting that information out into public knowledge. And again, it might kind of lead to a similar effect where, like you said, if, if things are brought to light, people might change their behavior. But essentially, it's just saying if prices increase above a certain amount year after year, then that manufacturer needs to submit a detailed account of that and, and their justifications and their reasons why to HHS. And then HHS can make that public for everyone to see. So it doesn't actually say you can or can't raise your price. Like HHS isn't being authorized to to make that decision. It's just allowing them to collect that information from manufacturers. And then the last thing that, or it was actually the first thing because we're going backwards here, um, <laughs> that, that you had mentioned was the bill to increase access to generics, which I'm interpreting, if I'm going to summarize the the point there, it's, it's that brands can't throw up unfair barriers to generic competition. Like they got to knock it off with the finding the legal loopholes to prevent generics from inching in on their patent. 
Yes. Yeah, exactly. So the creates act is the, the barrier there is, you know, we're not going to, as a brand manufacturer, we're not going to provide samples to the generic manufacturer and that prevents them from being able to actually produce a, a generic equivalent. And so that's been going on for some years now. And this would, it allows them to take up civil suit against brand manufacturers and kind of demand <laughs> that they give them those samples and also actually allows them to reap some kind of monetary reward from it as well from the brand manufacturers as an added incentive to, you know, not stall the delivery of samples in the first place. And then, yeah, there's just a bunch of other things that in the generic reform camp that just basically break down barriers. And it's hoping to allow more generic alternatives to come to the market, thereby increasing competition, thereby driving down prices. So there's a suite of reform there. We're likely to see a lot of that go into effect. If we're going to see anything, it's probably those items. So this is going to be really interesting. I feel like we're on like episode two of the season and we have yet to know whether this is going to be a blockbuster with a big finale or, or whether it's going to kind of fizzle out and no one's even going to remember it happened. I guess that <laughs> is, that is uh, TBD at this juncture. Yeah, very much so. <laughs> yeah, sort of what I was saying before. I mean, we we really thought we were going to see something much sooner. Definitely like June or July, we were expecting to see stuff. But then Senate finance kind of got held up because that was you know, like I was saying with the, with the Part D stuff, I mean, that's definitely the most contentious and there's a lot of change that's going to come from that. And so it was hard to get Democrats and Republicans on the same page. And so that's why Senate Finance took so long to release that package, because there was that bipartisan calculus that needed to happen. And we saw that kind of come out from committee right before the August recess began. And now we've lost a whole month or rather five weeks due to that and deliberations will pick up all over again in September. And then, you know, <laughs> Nancy Pelosi and President Trump are going to introduce their kind of what they've been working on since the beginning of this year. I think we started hearing about the Pelosi Trump stuff in the springtime and now it's almost fall and they're going to throw that into the mix and that's going to cause some delay and complication. And, you know, we've already gone through the first round of Democratic presidential primary debates. And so like, there's so much attention that is required to like make something happen on this front that's going to be this monumental. And I think it, there is really a good chance that we won't see much if anything happen because the conversation just moves elsewhere. And we forget all about this until next time. So Josh, if someone is interested in learning more about what you are up to over at the Win Group, where would you direct them for more information? Oh, yeah, I would definitely direct listeners to go to our website. Uh, it's winhealth.com, W-Y-N-N-E. It's actually named after our CEO and founder, Billy Wynn. Um, but go to winhealth.com. Um, we have our blog and our thought leadership posted up. We, we publish pretty often in places like Health Affairs and on the Commonwealth Fund blog and in other places similar to that. We're really interested in, in partnering and, and working with anyone who's definitely trying to drive the American healthcare system forward and towards value. Josh LaRosa, thank you so much for being on the Relentless Health Value podcast today. Yeah, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Links to everything discussed on the program today can be found at RelentlessHealthValue.com. If you visit the website, RelentlessHealthValue.com, you will also find a complete listing of all of the shows that we have published thus far with leading entrepreneurs and executives in the healthcare space today. Another cool feature is, you know, you can subscribe to the show so that every week the episode is automatically sent to you so you don't have to remember to go to the website to download it. 
Thanks so much for listening.